You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. What is going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas This Week podcast. You're listening to episode 198. How's quarantine, Mark? We're good. You know, everybody's healthy. We have food and toilet paper and and everything else. But it's um, you know, we got much bigger stuff going on right now than than what's going on in quarantine. And and you know, usually Jake and I have some fun doing this, and we're not going to make it all doom and gloom. But there's some serious stuff going on in our world right now. Yeah, it's one of those things that we need to. I spent a lot of time on you know putting together our notes this week and really kind of dissecting the information. And there's so much at play. We're talking about global macroeconomics. We're talking about how the coronavirus is, is affecting everybody. We're talking about how oil prices, especially low oil prices today, is going to affect everybody here stateside. And I also wanted us to kind of dive in and recap for those who are just kind of tuning in for the first time exactly how we got to this point. So Before we get there, Jake, though, let's go ahead and do the reviews. So our first one is a great oil and gas podcast by Francine D. I actually know who Francine D is. I talked to her. My husband recommended me to listen to this podcast to keep up to date with OG News. Really love it. Will be recommended to my colleagues and friends. And then another one, an Apple podcast by <laughs> Plopping Iffy. I gotta love Plopping <laughs> Iffy. I appreciate the show. Cool shirt. <laughs> and then this final one from Kelly Down Three Two One. What's up with the dated conversations? First Friday release eleven days later. Kelly, <laughs> we try to get stuff out as quick as possible, but between Jake and I, normal operations where we're so busy, and now with all this late on top of us, you know, we're struggling to get shows out. So apologize that was eleven days late, but that's probably not going to change anytime soon. So we know it's an issue, but it's we got other bigger fish to fry. So Jake, let's go ahead and get into your, your opening here because you did do a whole bunch of work on this. People, he's probably up, you know, till two in the morning getting all these facts <laughs> together. So as all of you know, we're in the middle of fighting a global pandemic, probably for the first time really in our life of this scale that's kind of coinciding with the global recession. Travel bans, restrictions are enforcing social distancing. So Mark and I have been cooped up at home, as I'm sure most of you have for at least the past few weeks. Restaurants, bars, gyms, workplaces have shut down, and that's been tough on me. Haven't been able to work out, haven't been able to, to do anything other than just stare at the walls of the house. Most of us are trying to get accustomed to working remotely from home, and that's completely new to most of the oil and gas industry. And last week, we talked about Russia and Saudi Arabia not reaching an agreement with the rest of OPEC and how the bottom has fallen out for oil prices. And now with everyone in quarantine and businesses closed, the global economy is coming to a halt. And so oil demand has dropped more than 10% down from our normal 100 million barrels per day down to less than 90 million barrels per day. And the accelerated drop in oil prices even further to new lows that we haven't even seen in decades. Mark, maybe you've seen it. I haven't seen oil prices quite this low. I've, I saw 25, 26 back in 14, 15, but this is a complete, this is new. It touched 20. Yeah, I saw it in the 80s get lower than this, but that was a different combination of factors then. And that scared the bejeebies out of everybody then, right? Now with this like perfect storm of the coronavirus with the low crude prices, with literally countries being locked down. And here in the U.S., we have several states that the literally it's the states, entire states are locked down. And you combine all that with social media where people can instantly find out what's going on. And as a population, we have never experienced this before. We have, you know, there's, this is usually where I shine when I start making predictions about stuff. I have no experience at all, nor does anybody, no political leaders, no people, you know, no doctors, no podcasters, you know, nobody talking crap on Twitter or YouTube or whatever. Nobody's been through this. So nobody can use experience to say where this thing's going, but it's Jake, you know, for the first time in an extremely long time, I'm worried. 
Yeah, I'm worried too. And it's one of those things that, so today's episode is going to be a little bit longer. There's a lot to cover. We want to unpack the situation. I by no means nor Mark have the solution to the situation, but we want to try to give you all the facts. I spent pretty much all of yesterday and the day before just reading everything I possibly could get my hands on to really try to assess the situation because it's concerning. It's very concerning. We don't really know what's going to happen. The latest Imperial report that everybody is referencing is saying that this can last 12 to 18 months. And so then the question becomes, can we all self-quarantine for 12 to 18 months without completely destroying the global economy? And if not, then what do we do? You know, so do we just accept the fact that we're going to infect other people and there's going to be more deaths? You know, I'm really curious to hear everyone's take. So, you know, please write in, you know, if, if we get any of this wrong, please let us know. There's just so much to uncover. So Mark, do you want to start off? How did all this begin? Let's go ahead and recap everything that happened with OPEC not agreeing. You want me to do this? You want to run run through that part? (laughs) Yeah, sure. So uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salam singled that Saudi Arabia was once again going to produce oil to the maximum to crash oil prices in a full-scale oil price war. Basically, Russia and Saudi Arabia are in this price war. Russia has a budget break-even price of $40 per barrel. And then Saudis is 84. So Russia can produce over 11 million barrels per day easily. And Saudi averages about 8 million barrels a day. So Russia's major oil producer, Rosneft, has been begging President Putin to allow it to produce and sell more oil since the OPEC arrangement that was first agreed upon in December 2016. So by the, what is that, Jake? MBS. So that's Mohammed bin Salman. Oh, That's the crown prince from Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So he literally just gave Russia what they wanted. And as of Friday, Russia reported increase in production, which has caused WTI to drop from 25 back down to $23. This is crazy. I haven't seen prices this low. It happened so quickly. And once again, like we talked about earlier, this is literally a price war between Russia and Saudi Arabia. And a lot of the Americans, especially the service companies as of today, are the ones that start to take casualties. Yeah. So Saudi Arabia is coming in and saying to Russia, hey, we're going to increase production. And Russia especially Putin probably fell off of his horse that he was riding shirtless and was like, he was like, okay, go ahead. Let's see what happens. And so how does this affect each of them? So let's start with Russia. So before Russia increased production on Friday, today's Saturday, so this would have been yesterday, they were on track to lose more than $40 billion in revenue due to lower prices. And that's expected to be even higher now. But when Russia runs in a deficit, they pull from their sovereign wealth fund, aka their national wealth fund. So at the current rate, they can last up to five years. Okay. That's just with them being in a deficit, but they can weather the storm much longer than Saudi Arabia can. So how does this affect Saudi Arabia? So as Saudi Arabia's own deputy economic minister, Mohammed Al-Tuhari, stated unequivocally in October that if the Saudis tried this exact same strategy from 2014 to 2016, and if the global economy stays the same, which it hasn't, obviously coronavirus has accelerated things, they are doomed for bankruptcy three or four years into this. And so that's their own economic minister saying the exact same thing. If they tried this, it's not going to work out well for them. So here's the interesting thing. We've talked about Saudi Aramco's IPO over the last probably eight or nine months, everything leading up to it, them going, raising a ton of money, them being valued at the most valuable company in the world, $2 trillion plus market cap. But here's the issue. Saudi Aramco is currently serving two masters, the public, so the kingdom and its shareholders. The population there in Saudi Arabia, 20% of the population actually invested in the IPO. There's a little bit of speculation there that they were forced to invest in the IPO, but still everybody is incentivized for Saudi Aramco to do well. So Saudi has committed to a $75 billion dividend to public shareholders before the kingdom gets paid. Now with all this is going on with lower oil prices and coronavirus and everything else, it's looking like there's not going to be enough cash to even cover that. 
So the question becomes, will the kingdom pay itself? And if it fails to provide the dividend and funds the government anyways, it shows that Aramco is still a tool for its own power and not a public firm at all. And so faith in the company should be lost and will be lost. And I would expect shares to completely tank. So in practical terms, that means if this takes longer than we thought by Russia for Saudi to go bankrupt and it starts to have any negative impacts on Russia, then Moscow will just click its fingers together and Radia will come running and sign a new OPEC deal. Yeah. So there's some other variables that can play in this. And once again, I don't know. This is just me talking out loud through some of the other possibilities. One of which is we, as the as a U.S. producer, we actually, if we wanted to, could outproduce both Russia and OPEC at the same time. And they know that. Now, we won't at this low crude price environment, but we could. And Jake, darn it, if I was president, I think I'd open the strategic reserve. I'd flood the market. I'd put tax incentives to make our operators get whole financially, but make them produce as much as possible. I think I'd bring oil down to $5 a barrel for a while and bankrupt both Russia and Saudi Arabia because we can recover from it. Our economy is not dependent 100% on hydrocarbons. Theirs is. The other thing that could happen is our government could pace taxes or tariffs on imported crude. That would artificially prop up the U.S. market. But once again, you know, do you pull that lever? There's not a lot that we can do right now. Although it was interesting to watch Trump say that he's going to get ready to look into this. And I believe that was yesterday. And all prices went up temporarily because of the perception of him actually looking into it. So it just shows you how much perception can move this market around. And this this low crude price just can't continue. What scares me is the facts that you actually dug up in the fact that if Russia needs to, they can continue this much longer than Saudi Arabia can. Much, much longer. And so I'm seeing at $25 a barrel from everything that I'm reading, Russia can last up to 10 years with their strategic reserves. And then a Saudi can manage two to five years, kind of given where things are at currently at most. And so remember, Saudi was the one who started this, not Russia. Right. Uh, so what we need to do is we need to get Saudi back at the table and agree to the production cuts. And so let's talk about, there's two different hats. So I agree with everything you said about our economy is not based or reliant 100% on oil and gas or energy near as much as the Russians or Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, 60% of their entire income comes from oil and gas. However, so there's two hats. So there's the, my global or my United States citizen hat. And then there's the, me as an oil and gas professional hat. And obviously, you know, completely flooding the market would completely ruin most of our industry for so long. So let's dive into how does this affect us? You know, we're seeing a lot of layoffs. We're seeing a lot of furloughs. So let's talk about what's happening to Washington. So oil lobbyists have already pushing Congress for help. You're seeing Republican senators pleading with letters to the Saudi government to back off of the price war. But there's little evidence to suggest that a dozen U.S. senators will be able to convince Saudi Arabia to change course. Now, Trump's saying that he could intervene in the price war with Saudi Arabia and Russia. And we saw the price of oil go up a little bit. We saw stocks go up just a little bit. Everything's still down, but it's from where it was. But they're searching for a media, a medium ground to kind of break the deadlock as lawmakers are trying to figure out how to help our domestic oil and gas industry. So Trump's administration is planning on aiding struggling shale drillers involving buying as much as $3 billion worth of oil from domestic producers who employ 5,000 people or less. This is a it's a short-term solution. We don't have a ton of capacity in the strategic reserves. I think this can last for, I think from what I read, a little over a month in terms of us actually filling up the strategic reserves, and then they're full. And then what do we do? You know, so I don't really see that as a long-term solution. So what is the solution? Mark, do you want to go first? What do you think is the solution? I've got a couple different options that I've kind of laid out that we can dive into. Yeah. So everybody's talking that we need to cut production. And that has bothered the bejeebies out of me since it first started being mentioned a year ago. 
And you know what, Jake? Maybe that's the right way to go. You know, it's a global commodity. Weird now can be the swing player in all of this. My my problem with cutting production is then you're having the government step in and tell private companies what to do. And that's a very non-capital, very un-American thing to do. But it might be the it might not be, it might not, not only be the best solution, it might be the only solution. Yeah. So man, this is hard. So I guess it kind of falls into two categories. Do we play ball? On a global scale, do we go and sit at the table with OPEC? I saw Ryan Sitton, who's one of the railroad yep, commissioners. Yep, I saw it too. He tweeted out that he has been invited to the OPEC meeting, I think, at the end of March or early April. June. I don't know exactly. June? June. Okay, so in June. Yeah. I guess they're postponing it due to the corona pandemic. So do we play ball? Do we sit at the table with them and do we agree to any production cuts on a global scale? And I think I could be wrong. This could be the first time that we've actually agreed to any production cuts at kind of the global stage. We have done production cuts as a state in Texas in 1973, or do we play hardball? Okay, so let's kind of dive into each one of those. And so Texas Royal Commissioner Ryan Sitton proposed a plan in which Texas, which is the world's third largest oil producer, to join the two oil superpowers to curb supply, asking for federal support to negotiate with the other countries. So this is taking the this is taking the route of we cut production as well. You have to understand the kind of the backstory with Russia and Saudi Arabia is they've been upset with us for a very long time that they have agreed to production cuts to help stabilize oil prices and we haven't. Okay, so should we be at the table? Should we not? Ryan Sitton was quoted as saying, I've heard from operators on both sides for and against it, but I want an open dialogue. I want to hear from various groups on this issues, operators, economists, and statisticians. But from the reports that I've seen, at best, any of the Texas production cuts could stabilize prices at around $30 per barrel. Don't know if that's true or not. And break-evens for most producers is actually much higher than that. So it's we probably still have tens of thousands of layoffs, which we're already starting to see now. Yeah, it's God, it's really interesting to, to think that the state of Texas and Ryan Sitton, who's the former railroad commissioner, is going to the table as an equal with Russia and Saudi Arabia. But, you know, Jake, maybe this is a thing that needs to be done. I, this slow crude price environment can't, we, we can't, the world can't take it for a very long time. And it's, you know, it's just, there's, it's a supply and demand thing right now. And the thing I'm worried about is that perception right now is slowing demand along with the loss of airline flights and that sort of stuff. But the demand is actually going to take another nosedive in probably another week or two as more countries and more states in the U.S. get locked down and there's less travel. You know, So for me, there's no clear line of sight of what's the exact right thing to do. Yeah, it's a supply and a demand problem at the exact same time. <laughs> and it's really hard to figure out how do we solve this. So we, we talked about, okay, so do we cut production and do we play ball? Or do we play hardball? So on the other side of the fence, you have Senator Kevin Kramer from North Dakota has already wrote President Trump calling on him to embargo crude oil from Russia, Saudi Arabia, and OPEC countries. But the thing is that the U.S. now produces 12 times more oil than it imports from Saudi Arabia, which now represents only 9% of U.S. oil imports. So, Mark, is that I think you understand this a little better than I do on on the import and export side. Is that really going to make a difference or is this just poking the hornet's nest? It would make a difference. The problem is we like and import heavy complex crudes and we produce light sweet crudes. And so our refineries and our petrochemical plants would have to retrofit and that's capital intensive in a time in the market where there's, you know, people are probably wanting to hold on to their capital. I mean, there's still companies out there that are able to pay dividends and those dividends help foster the idea that we're not slipping into a recession so that people can, and companies continue to spend money. So we actually don't slip into a recession. So, you know, once again, it's a hard one to call and it's all happened so fast. If we would have had 
you know, six months to, to make these type of decisions, I think we could, could have charted a very good course. Once again, will the import tariffs raise prices here in the U.S.? Yes. Is it a long-term fix, Jake? I don't know. Yeah. So I guess my question is, can we even afford to play hardball? So given the current state of the industry, particularly shale, shale company stock prices have been absolutely in the dumps, especially over the past year. We've talked a lot about this, but now with everything that's going on, it seems like I don't know how some of these companies are going to survive. So here's a list of, of certain companies at various stages that are currently exploring debt restructuring, which includes Whiting Petroleum, Antoro Resources, California Resources, Chesapeake Energy. Chesapeake Energy, at one point in time, their market cap was bigger than Chevron. Yeah, crazy. That's absolutely nuts. And Gulfport Energy is the last one on here. So a lot of these companies that are on life support. There's a few exceptions, ExxonMobil and Chevron. And so, which is Chevron brings me to an interesting point. So, you know, obviously Chevron made a bid for Anadarko a while back, right? And then Oxy outbid them with thanks to some $10 billion in cash from Warren Buffett. But now Oxy's market cap is like, I think one fourth or one fifth of what it was before the acquisition went through. And so now it's, the question becomes, they have a ton of debt. And so that's the only reason that this wouldn't go through, but could Chevron in theory come in and purchase Oxy slash Anadarko for a, you know, a fifth of the price maybe of what they were going to buy Anadarko for. Yeah. So the Oxy Darko thing, I didn't mean to call it, but I did a while back. I said, you know, Chevron could wait. And as they tank, just pick them up for pennies on dollar. I had no idea this would happen. Chevron has the cash. Chevron could pick them up and acquire their debt and be okay financially. Now, will they do it? I don't think so. Yeah. So let's talk about break-evens. So we talked about break-evens of Saudi Arabia. We talked about break-evens of Russia. But shale in 2015 had the second highest break-even price in the world at $68 a barrel. Now, costs have fallen substantially thanks to a lot of improvements in technology, and it's just getting better. But break-even now on average is around $46 per barrel. Obviously, there's a million different variables that go into that from company to company, from basin to basin. But that is still a far cry from the $23 that we're seeing today. And so... We've seen a lot of, we saw Harold Ham go to the White House and saying, hey, Trump, we need a bailout. We need a bailout. We need a bailout. I think the banks are saying they need a bailout. Airline companies are saying they need a bailout. Defense, so like Boeing is saying they need a bailout on the aerospace side and on the, the commercial airliner side. I don't think we need a bailout. Okay. And there's a reason we don't need a bailout. And it's because a lot of the shale producers have been drilling WTI into the ground for the last decade and getting rich at the expense of shareholders. We've talked about this. Bailouts don't teach anyone a lesson. Look at 2008. Did the banks learn the lesson? I don't think so. So they did learn their lesson, but it definitely changed the rules. And I'm only saying this from experience because I bought a house at the end of last year, and it was the most scrutiny I've ever been through. You'd think I was applying for a CIA job, you know, but it definitely changed the rules. But I agree with you. What we don't need, what actually would make it worse long-term wise, is for the government to step in and start writing producers or upstream operators checks especially since some of those upstream operators at this low crude price might use that money for something else, you know, either to buy back stock or to refinance debt instead of getting rid of debt. And they may still lay people off. And to your point, their capital inefficiencies in upstream in the U.S. for the last couple of years, it just is not a good business model and it needs to change. Yeah. And I think we know the glory days of production growth over everything are, are gone. It's time for a lot of these companies to evolve or die. You got to operate within cash flow. And that's just not that's not just a lesson for businesses. That's also a lesson for us as individuals. Our entire world is built on credit, especially the lifestyle that we enjoy here in America. But it's times like this where cash is really king. You know, markets are crashing, oil prices are down. Cash is king. You know, and I think we <laughs> companies and as a nation need to learn how to save some damn money. Yeah, not to get off this tr- subject, but <laughs> 
I made a huge miscalculation of the market <laughs> and I bought a whole bunch of stuff Friday figuring it would go up on Monday. This is a couple of weeks ago. And then when they announced that the government was dropping the interest rates, the Fed were dropping the interest rate, I was convinced that everything was going to go up on Monday. And then the bell opened on Monday and everything just tanked. And so I'm not going to lose money, but I'm going to have to sit on this for six months or a year before I make my money back. So, and the whole reason I bring that up is to Jake's point, you know, a lot of people uh, like me have a decent income from the market. What happens when the market disappears, which is what's going on right now? Well, that income dries up. And so I may eventually, or I'm sure I will eventually get back to where it was before. But now that revenue that used to fund my household has dropped by 80%. So once again, it's operating your business, profitable business, instead of worrying about growth is really the way we always should do it. Whether it's that's your household or you know, you're running a 100 rig operation out in the Permian somewhere. It's funny. I haven't heard a single thing about ESG in the last two weeks. <laughs> yeah, all that just disappeared, didn't it? <laughs> so unfortunately, I wish we could turn to, to more optimistic stuff, but layoffs and furloughs have already begun. Halliburton announced it's furloughing 3,500 employees and would essentially have their pay cut in half. And there have already been tens of thousands of layoffs in the Permian alone. So I know some of the biggest companies, some of the fastest growing companies in the space with on the OFS sector, on the tech sector, they're already beginning layoffs. And so it's also, it's really unfortunate, you know, 2014, 2015, you and I both lived through that. And I think the numbers I found were, we had really close to about 200,000 layoffs during that time, you know, and it's a hard thing. I was talking to one of my buddies who runs a pretty nice size EMP here in Houston, and they had 40 people in, in the office and they are now down to eight. He cut his pay and all the executive staff's pay down to a quarter what they're normally getting paid. And... They say, he said that all they've been doing is just cutting costs, cutting costs, cutting costs, just trying to survive any way they possibly can. You know, And so it's hard on business owners, entrepreneurs to have to do that. And it's hard on the people who are working because now you're, you're out of a job, especially in the midst of a, a global pandemic, and you can't really go out and apply for any new jobs. And so it's, it's absolutely catastrophic. So my heart goes out to everybody who's going to be affected by this. You know, it's, Tons of people have already been affected and more people will be affected. Yeah, it's still too early on to see where this thing's going to go, but people are being laid off. Companies are cutting already. And the the people I worry about the most are the ones that are on the front lines. A lot of them live paycheck to paycheck. A lot of them can't go a month or two or three without having any money coming in. Now, there are, just for anybody that's out there listening, especially if you're in the Texas area, there's some good temporary news out there. HEB, Kroger, Amazon and Walmart all hiring like crazy right now. And yes, I know you're stocking shelves at midnight. And yes, I know it's not as much money as when you were spinning wrenches out in Midland, Texas, but it's still a job, right? They can't hire enough people. So the other thing is interesting, Jake and I were talking about this before we turn the microphones on, but you're starting to see companies chip in and do really cool stuff, right? Take caps off band with AT&T to that. I can't believe they did that. Hats off to them. You're seeing a lot of companies volunteer. You're seeing a lot of companies give stuff back. You're seeing, I think it's really cool, Jake. You don't, you probably remember the history of this, but during World War II, a lot of the automobile manufacturers in the U.S. switched from making cars to making tanks and airplane engines and everything. You're seeing it happen right now. You're seeing GM, Ferrari, and I believe Chrysler switched their manufacturing, start making respirators, right? Yeah. Because they got they, they SpaceX are doing the same thing. Yeah, so they got the mass manufacturing down pat. Just give me the blueprints for the respirator. We'll get those out too. 
you're seeing local communities come together. We did this little campaign where we basically went door to door and stuck notes on people's doors saying, hey, look, during this time, if you need something, if you need me to run the grocery store for you or walk your dog or whatever, let us know. And Jake, I now know all my neighbors. I didn't know any of my neighbors before this happened. Now, I would like to have known my neighbors in a different circumstance than this, but there's a lot of positives coming out of this. One of the things I don't like is nobody knows where this is going to go. Nobody knows what's going to happen. And yet there's people out there screaming doom and gloom. And maybe it is doom and gloom, but do you really, really want to be remembered as that guy on the Titanic that was talking about the boat sinking as the musicians continue to play? Everybody remembers the musicians that continue to play, not the guy that screamed the boat is sinking. So since you don't know what's going on, try not to add to the public hysteria. It's bad enough where people are getting fistfights over hand sanitizer, you know, where there's police at my local grocery store. You know, be optimistic, be open minded and be a realist. Right. Because this is trying times. And, and but, you know, don't add to the, the negative public fever that's going on there because that doesn't help anybody. Yeah, absolutely. So. I think during this time, I'm actually going to be writing a blog post on my site later, probably this week, talking about, you know, we're, we're moving into, it's a different world. I think this is going to be a major, you know, pivot point for how we operate as a society. I think everybody's eyes have been open to remote working, you know, Silicon Valley and a lot of other companies have been doing it for a long time. It's completely new to oil and gas. And so I think as a result, you know, especially if you're laid off, realize that you are not your job. And so if you're laid off and you have to take a, you know, a lower paying position, there's no shame in that whatsoever. And the second thing is also realize that the internet is the greatest tool out there. So during this downtime, if you have time on your hands and you, you know, aren't able to find a, a traditional job, there are ways that you can learn skills online for free. You've got Skillshare, you've got Udemy, you've got Khan Academy, you've got all these kind of things. And then you also have the internet as a tool to turn around and use those skills that you've just acquired to make money on things like Upwork and Fiverr and other freelance type platforms. The gig economy is a wonderful thing. The internet is an amazing tool. So learn, it can be anything, audio editing, video editing. You can be a virtual assistant. You can be an admin. And if you don't know how to do those things, you can learn those things online and then sell those services later online. So don't think that you have to stay in your lane 100% during this time. Find a way to make yourself valuable to someone. The world's a very big place. So keep your heads up. If there's any way that we can help, feel free to reach out. We're more than happy to try to do whatever we possibly can, even though you know it's a little bit limited given $23 oil. So... <laughs> Yeah. Just take care of your long ones. Make sure that you're prepared. You know, for all the people out there buying toilet paper, you really probably should be buying dried rice and beans instead so that if you can't get the grocery, you can feed your family. But, you know, just keep your head on a swivel. Be open-minded. Be realistic about stuff. We're going to keep you all posted. You know, this thing is just in the very beginning of, and we don't know where it's going to go. But, you know, just hold on tight and, and we're we're in for a ride whether we want to or not. So in other news, Mark, we're doing the giveaway. Heck yeah, we're still doing the weekly giveaway. Big shout out to IBM. Actually, it's really cool, Jake. They're doing, they're on their medical side, they're giving away a lot of free services to try to help track and manage the spread of the coronavirus. And we're going to actually shoot a little bit of video with them next week and talk about that. I just think it's awesome. They're giving away for free. Once again, they're trying to help humanity. You know, They're not trying to help their shareholders. And in this time, that's exactly how people and companies should be thinking. But we are giving away a shirt. It's really cool. It has a pump jack on the front shoulder, OGN logo on one, I mean, pump jack on the front, OGG logo on one shoulder, IBM logo on the other. It has a unique serial number that we will be giving away some cool stuff for. 
hey, all joking aside, what if we had a ton of toilet paper we could give it away to somebody that had the, the right serial number they could distribute in their local community? We, <laughs> we just didn't think that far ahead. But we give away one a week, go register, and then those numbers are very valuable in the future. And then I'm not going to even do the rig count, Drake. It's just let, not even going to do it. I will talk about the street team, though, as our global volunteers. Hey, if you're sitting at home and you're bored, go join the street team. The street team is actually one of the triggers I pulled immediately when all this happened to help get out in touch with their local neighbors. They got the same notes that we put out on LinkedIn, the whole street team got it. And they went out in all their local communities around the world and it spread that willingness to help, which is awesome. So go just go to Facebook, search for OG and street team. You sign up. We ask you for an hour's worth of work a week. And if you can't, we're fine with that too. And then the monthly emails are still going out. The events, even though everything is shut down, Jake, we shut down all our live events. So this thing clears over and it looks like everybody's done the same thing, but the newsletter still goes out. It's free. Go to show notes, click on the link, sign up for it. And then if you want Jake and I to come speak, we can't do it. Uh, not now. But we think there's going to be a rebound. We think when all this clears away and uh, people start traveling for business again, we think you're not going to be able to buy an airline te- seat for three months. So if you want to get in that mad rush where everybody's booking us to speak when all this thing, when all this stuff clears up, you better sign up now. So if you want to you want to talk about us speaking in the future, let us know. We'll share the details with you. And then first Friday Q&A, even though sometimes we get them out 11 days late, we're still doing that as well. If you want to submit a question, please go to oilandgasthisweek.com, click on ask a question, submit your question. Just remember the goal is not to stump Jake and I. And then this is about where I would get to the events on deck, except we've canceled them all. So really, Jake, you know, from Jake and myself to everybody that's listening out there, you know, just you know, keep your loved ones close and do the right things. We're here for you. If we can help in some way or fashion, let us know. And we'll get another episode out, update you again in about a week. Ready to get out of here, Jake? Let's do it. All right, folks. Remember, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. And here are the events on deck. Hey everybody, Alex here with the events on deck for the next month. We have some exciting things coming up, two happy hours, one in Pittsburgh and one in Denver. So the first one will be happening on March 22nd at Bubba's Gourmet Burgers and Beer. This event will be from four to seven and will feature a live recording of Oil & Gas This Week with Jake Corley and Mark LaCour. So be sure to check that out. You can sign up via our social medias. We have an Eventbrite sign up and should be good to go from there. The next event will be a happy hour in Denver at Liberty Oil Field Services on April 2nd. Once again, check our social medias for the Eventbrite sign up and sign up there. As some of our social media followers may know, we are headed to Aberdeen, Scotland the first week of March, in a couple days actually, for DokeroCon, creating high impact sales and energy. Dokeroo is excited to launch its very first sales development conference, and OGN's Mark and Patrick will be hosting a panel and recording a live podcast, so we're really excited to be joining that. The Leaders in Industry Luncheon is on March 11th at the Petroleum Club of Houston. Port of the Future is happening on March 10th and 11th in Houston. Your registration to the Port of the Future conference also allows you access to exclusive events, including TSA Security and Terrorism, Research Showcase, and many more. So be sure to view the agenda and see what they are offering. The Houston Energy Breakfast will be on March 20th at the Norris Conference Center in Houston. The API Energy Houston 3-Gun Chapter will be on March 20th. This event is filling up very quickly, so make sure to get a team in as soon as possible. The BP Energy Outlook 2020 edition will be on April 21st 
It's happening online. And this event is about transitions that will take place to a low carbon energy system. That's all for this month, everybody. Hope you guys have a good month and check back in next month to see what events we're having. Thanks. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.